Hello, thank you for tuning in to our Empire Lecture Series podcast. We hope this podcast finds you well, whether you're driving to work, between cases, or adding some education to your workout. Remember that all of these lectures are also available on our website and YouTube channel. And if you like what you hear, please rate us five stars and subscribe. Happy listening. Uh, we're lucky enough to have Dr. Hakimi here from uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering. Uh, Dr. Hakimi completed his uh, urologic residency, I believe, at Montefiore, and then went to uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering for a fellowship in urologic oncology. Um, Dr. Uh, Hikimi, just uh, we've been asking for advice uh, to trainees who are tuning in. So in terms of how you, um, could you tell us a little bit about how you picked your chosen field of urologic oncology? Sure. Um, so I always had wanted to do something cancer related. Uh, that's why I went to medical school. Um, I just had an interest strongly from, um, from some exposure after college, I worked actually at Memorial just by chance because I was looking for a job for a year before medical school. And, um, you know, I got really just fascinated by the field. Um, and then when I was uh, doing my surgical clerkship, I obviously I knew I wanted to be in the OR. And I kind of narrowed it down to a couple of fields that I thought were interesting. And urologic oncology to me had a, like a, a breadth of uh, just different types of cases and different types of diseases, uh, very unique uh, opportunity to have long-term relations with patients. So to me, that was kind of, uh, it brought out the best in all aspects of medicine for me. So that's how I chose it. Excellent. Um, and any advice to trainees uh, with medical students and residents tuning in, um, if they want to uh, get into academic medicine in a fellowship, anything that they should be doing that they might not be thinking about now? I think it's great to have a good mentor to try to identify somebody that, um, that you can kind of um, have a relationship with throughout the whole process. I, I was lucky enough to have some great mentors uh, at Memorial, even when I was um, uh, a first year medical student that I maintained a relationship with, uh, namely Dr. Russo, Paul Russo. And that continued throughout my um, medical school and residency. And um, I went to Montefiore, which was a great residency program, but um, at the time at least didn't have a ton of academic uh, powerhouse uh, researchers there. Uh, it's it's actually changed quite a bit since I was there. But um, but the um, but having that kind of ongoing mentorship and advice on on doing projects and stuff and uh, getting involved in research and just having someone to go to you know to kind of advocate for you uh, was very important to me. And so I think that's a really good opportunity uh, for for students to kind of help themselves and learn more about the field, but also you know uh, help their careers as they go. Excellent. Thank you so much. Um, so again, everybody, uh, we're lucky to have Dr. Hakimi here. Please enter any questions you have into the chat function, and I'll try to address them with him uh, at the end of the talk. So take it away, Dr. Hakimi. How does it look now, the slides? It looks great. Okay, cool. All right, so I'm going to give the last, I'm going to give this talk on immunotherapy. And um, while it's, you know, you may think this is more geared toward kind of the medical oncology crowd, there's two reasons why I, I chose to give this talk. One is that um, immunotherapy has totally changed the game for metastatic kidney cancer. So I think it's really important for us as people that are dealing with kidney cancer, especially if you deal with advanced kidney cancer, that you understand this fact and it's you know more hopeful for our patients than it's ever been before. But also because immunotherapy is changing the timing of surgery and sometimes it's given preoperatively now. So it's really important to understand what it means to have immunotherapy and how that can change um, 
you know, the surgical, and I'll talk about that at the end of the talk about kind of the rules of operations during uh, immunotherapy because it's an evolving field. We have a trial here of neoadjuvant immunotherapy. So for localized disease, we're giving immunotherapy um, beforehand. And then there's a lot of um, patients that um, were considered for cytoreductive or they have it, uh, but were rejected for whatever reasons or with some of the trial data um, that you may have heard of about a few weeks ago, suggesting that reduction should be more limited. Uh, you're seeing more and more patients that get upfront immunotherapy and then go toward uh, surgery down the road. So I think it's important for the urologist to understand what immunotherapy means and also understand uh, you know, why, what, that, what that does. So I want to just start off with a couple of um, kind of things I do in my lab. So, so I'm, a, I'm a surgeon, I, I do kidney cancer, uh, you know, clinically, but I also, uh, about 50% of my time is spent in the lab. I do a lot of research in genomics of kidney cancer, immunogenomics, and immunotherapies in kidney cancer. It's my, my, uh, my, my strong interest. And so one thing I want to just kind of impress upon you guys is that kidney cancer, clear cell in particular, is very unique in that it, it it's just expresses a lot of targets that are not focused on the cancer, but rather the microenvironment. So Two, two most notable aspects of this is um, VEGF and uh, T cells. So this is just a very simple, you know, way of seeing that data. And what I highlight in the red in the red box is, is clear cell. It's on the far right for both VEGF A, which is a you know vascular endothelial growth factor, which is a target of the of the uh, VEGF therapies, and then CD8A, which is just a simple gene that that's associated with T cells. And you can see that across 30 cancers, this is from the, the Cancer Genome Atlas study. Uh, that that clear cell renal cell carcinoma is the most expresses some of the most uh, amount of both of these targets, and that really sets the stage, I think, for what's been effective in this in this cancer from a therapeutic standpoint. We also know that it's just very distinctly infiltrated compared to its uh, normal kidney. So this is just a box plot of different cancers again, and on the top here you can see clear cell kidney cancer, and then this is the normal kidney next to it. And not only is it highly infiltrated, but this is distinct from the normal kidney itself. With lung cancer, we, which we know is another immunotherapy sensitive cancer, both the lung and the, and the kidney, it's, and the lung and the cancer itself are in, infiltrated. And this is thought largely due to the fact that most lung cancers are caused by smoking. So smoking is obviously inducing a lot of inflammation, a lot of uh, immunologic response, and that's affecting both the, the tumor, but also the, the, the normal kidney, the normal lung in this case. But in, 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 the, in kidney cancer's case, it's very specific to the tumor itself. Um, and you know, we've shown before, this is work that we did uh, several years ago, that um, clear cell kidney cancer, again, on the right here, is, has the most T cell infiltration. And, and the, th the thing that's interesting about this is that it's not driven by high mutations, which is something that you see in a lot of other cancers like melanoma, bladder cancer, lung cancers, where they have lots of mutations because of the mutagenesis of the, of the risk factors typically. And uh, clear cell kidney cancer is not like that. It has a very modest mutation burden about middle of the road compared to other solid tumors, but yet it has this very distinct uh, immune infiltration pattern. This is an unresolved reason uh, in the field. A lot of people, including our lab, have strong interest in understanding why um, this is the case. And, um, and you know, that's ongoing research in our lab as well to kind of explain that. But 
that kind of goes to the background here. So, you know, we've been fortunate enough uh, in the last 15 years to see just a real massive shift in how metastatic kidney cancer is treated. And a lot of these slides are provided to me by my close colleague, Martin Voss, who's a medical oncologist here at Memorial. So uh, I want to give him an acknowledgement up front because he provided me with a lot of this, a lot of this data. So this is, um, you know, just a schematic of what we've seen in the last 15 years. Um, this really started with the first TKI that was given in 2005, serafinib. Some, it's a very, very dirty TKI, meaning it, it targets lots of different tyrosine and kinases. Um, but it was really kind of started shifting from the cytokine era to a more targeted approach based on VHL, HIF axis. And then we started seeing sunitinib, which had been the kind of standard bearer for many years, followed by everolimus or temsorolimus and everolimus, which are mTOR inhibitors, really have kind of taken a back seat now to all the others. And then you started seeing you know, more specific tyrosine kinase inhibitors, such as pizopinib, these were better tolerated, but not really more effective. And then the first time we started seeing something that was better than the standard uh, in the first line setting, at least, was cabozantinib and ipinevo, which is really 2017 and 18. And that really kind of shifted uh, not only tolerability, but actually responses. And you'll see some of that data now. And now we're in the era of the, the dual combination therapy, which has really kind of been massively impactful. So I wanted to give a little bit of background though on the heterogeneity of metastatic clear cell. A lot of us have seen patients, we've operated on patients with low volume metastatic disease. And there's a real understanding and emerging understanding that many of these patients can be monitored and they actually don't need to go on to therapy. So before I talk about kind of therapeutic options, I wanted to make a big strong push for observation even in the metastatic setting. And a lot of the patients um, you know, are unaware that, that just because they have a little bit of cancer outside doesn't mean they necessarily need to undergo systemic therapy. So this is an example of a patient with a seven centimeter renal mass, had a nephrectomy in 2004 for grade two, uh, from a grade two PT2 disease. He was on active surveillance. And then 10 years or eight years later was found to have uh, a rectal peritoneal mass and then a lung lesion. And so this is kind of a slow growing kind of either oligometastatic or kind of unimetastatic uh, uh, unilateral um, or unifocal or, or really two solitary lesions in this case, but a long time period between the initial surgery. And then you compare this to a highly symptomatic patient with weight loss, gross hematuria, has a radical nephrectomy and has very aggressive features in the tumor. And then within a few months has a recurrence in the tumor bed. Uh, has adrenal hepatic metastases and pulmonary nodules. These are clearly two different ends of the spectrum here of what we can see, um, but but you clearly see there's some heterogeneity here. And there was a, you know, so essentially you have two cases, one with 15 years from nephrectomy and seven years from diagnosing metastatic disease. In that case, it's just, these are two memorial cases. And another one where you immediately are gonna give immunotherapy or, or systemic therapy in these patients. So there's a lot of heterogeneity even within the metastatic disease uh, category. And there was really a nice trial that was done um, by uh, at a Cleveland Clinic and Fox Chase, which showed that you can actually survey these patients for, for many years sometimes. Um, and this is a cohort of about 50 patients uh, with uh, metastatic uh, RCC that had surgery, the majority of them. And uh, they underwent kind of periods of observation. The median time to observation in this, in this case was about 12 months. But you can see even on the top right on the swimmer's plot here that there are several patients that are going on for years without really requiring much. And some of them don't even have any radiographic evidence of, of disease. So there's a lot of heterogeneity even within the metastatic. What drives this? What, are the, uh, what is the immune response in these tumors? This is all kind of an ongoing active area of interest, particularly in our lab. 
And so, you know, we're trying to figure out why a lot of patients don't need to start systemic therapy. So before, before I go in there, I also wanted to show kind of our data here. And this is uh, our data of active surveillance put together by uh, Andrew Salaghi, who's one of our uh, urology, uh, urology research fellows who's uh, spending time before he starts residency in, in Australia with me. He's been here about three years and done a phenomenal job kind of looking at all of our cytoreductive. And we have this cohort of patients that kind of went on active surveillance afterwards. So we started with 508 patients that had our cytoreduction and we found about 20% of them went on active surveillance for periods of time. Now, some of them have had some focal treatment during that process, but when I say active surveillance, I mean really that they have not had either been watched completely or not had any systemic therapy for a period of time after surgery. And you can see that the median time in this highly selected group though, but, but about 20% of our cohort was about 12 months, similar to the RINI study that I showed earlier. And the median time to systemic therapy though was almost two years. And the median over survi overall survival is, was over four years. And so this is clearly a group of patients with more indolent disease that can often be watched. And you can see here that a good per percentage of them are alive and well. And, and the ones that go on to active surveillance, some of them, albeit a small percentage, can stay on that for four, five, six years even. And we've seen that kind of routinely here. Um, and this is kind of our similar swimmers plot to the, to the RINI cohort. And again, these are months from nephrectomy. So you can see there's a sizable number of patients that remain kind of with the smoldering disease or not truly metastatic. So this is something very important to understand. And many of you will end up practicing at places where the medical oncologist may be just used to treating everybody kind of similarly in the sense that they may not be nuanced with kidney cancer. If they're a general oncologist or if they're a GU oncologist, they may still not appreciate all the nuances and may be tempted to just put someone on systemic therapy if they have metastatic disease. And our policy here at Sloan, at least, is to observe many of these patients with low volume solitary lesions, especially, especially if they're asymptomatic. Uh, and we can get away with that for long periods of time. So that's just an important point to take away. So how do we risk stratify patients in the metastatic setting? Or how do the medical oncologists do that? How do they decide whether a patient has kind of aggressive disease or not? So there were two kind of uh, criteria, one that I'm more classical and then one that's more uh, updated. This is the Mozer or MSKCC criteria that was developed in the cytokine era. So this is in the, in the mid, mid to late 90s from, interferon, from the interferon days. And so they had risk factors, which take into account the performance status, the time from diagnosis, hemoglobin, LDH, and calcium. And they grouped patients into favorable, intermediate, and poor risk. And this was um, really tracked very, very well with their overall prognosis and then the response to therapy. So favorable patients, probably similar to most of the patients that we see in, that, um, in, the, in the observation cohorts. These are mostly favorable risk patients in general. Um, they survive two and a half years on average, intermediate 14 months, and the poor risk patients survive only five months. And these are, these are important numbers to keep in mind because you'll see how, how this may have shifted since we started immunotherapy. More recently, there was the IMDC or the Hang criteria. This was a multi-cohort institution uh, that's put together by Danny Hang from Vancouver and Tony Schwery from the uh, MD Anderson, or from um, Dana-Farber. And uh, this is a massive cohort of international and national um, uh, centers that have now, I think, over 10,000 patients. Uh, and they've put together different criteria, similar to the Mozart, but a little bit better in prediction and has been validated in, in more modern therapies uh, more frequently. We actually use this now, despite uh, the MSK criteria being developed here. Um, and it has similar, the KPS, time to diagnosis, hemoglobin neutrophils and platelets, 
and then the corrected calcium here. And again, into the similar intermediate, favorable intermediate and poor risk patients. So these are often how the medical oncologist will choose to determine this. But actually, you can apply this even to surgical patients. If you see patients with kind of altered lab values, you should be very, very um, you know, concerned about jumping the, you know, into surgery in these patients because they do poorly with surgery as well. So when you're deciding on side of reduction, we often take these values into account as well, and uh, that helps guide our, our treatment strategies for patients with uh, resectable disease. So in terms of what we have now for the first-line therapies in clear cell kidney cancer, there's really been you know, utilization of both the VEGF therapies and these uh, IO therapies, immunotherapies. And so they're, they're really, the, the NCCN guidelines are based on kind of the risk groups. So if you're favorable risk, you're offered either single agent um, VEGF therapies or more recently axitinib and Pembroke. And we're gonna go through the data on all these. And then if you're intermediate or poor risk, again, with those laboratory and performance status, you're offered mostly immunotherapies or a next generation tyrosine kinase inhibitor. And then these are other recommendations, but these are really kind of what's moved into the first line. And you can see really that Everolimus, Temsorolimus, the mTOR inhibitors have really fallen off uh, and only used under very extreme circumstances or unusual circumstances. Uh, and IL-2, which was the classical, really only therapy that we had in the 90s, um, is really given on, you know, almost never anymore. I mean, just rare, rare occasions. So historically, again, the VEGF therapies were based on the, the VHL-HIF axis, where you have a VHL loss in about 90% of clear cells. And then you have an upregulation of HIF and the HIF target genes, which ultimately upregulates VEGF and leads to the VEGF receptor causing higher levels of angiogenesis within the tumor. That's why these tumors are so uh, blood vessel rich. And, and that has been the source of multiple targets. So these are the, the uh, FDA approved agents and they all target different aspects of the VEGF pathway. But the next generation ones, particularly linvatinib and cabozanib, also target some of the escape mechanisms for VEGF inhibitors. And that's why they've thought to be more effective and are often given now in the first line or in combination. They target either HGF or FGF. These are upregulated receptors when you target the VEGF inhibitor. So when you knock down VEGF, these get upregulated on the cells. And so the cabozanibs and levatinibs target these escape mechanisms, making them more effective. So the first trials, these are the classical trials that you know, most medical oncologists know. This is sunitinib versus pizopinib. This was really showing the first time another drug was useful. And this was really a tolerability trial. So this, this uh, study uh, published uh, showed that these are both effective. Uh, and the uh, COMPARS trial published in 2013 in, in the New England Journal showed that pazopinib was, was better tolerated. So at least in MSK before the immunotherapy, this was the standard first-line therapy because it was just better tolerated than sunitinib. It wasn't more effective, but it was better tolerated. Then came the CABO-SUN trial. This was um, published out of Dana-Farber 2016-17. And this was the first time showed a drug that was more efficacious than sunitinib, the classical. So cabozantinib uh, was, uh, again, the second generation TKI that targets uh, MET and Axel. And in addition to VEGF, this showed a significant uh, improvement in, in uh, progression-free survival. And so that became kind of more of the standard now in the first line. And particularly was useful for patients with bony metastasis. Um, so that's kind of the rationale for favorable risk patients getting pizopinib, sunitinib, or cabozanib in the intermediate and poor risk patients. Um, 
but now you've started to see improved survivals uh, that kind of track with these uh, introduction of immunotherapies. So at the time, uh, this is a two-year overall survival rate in uh, renal cell carcinomas. And again, I, I emphasize to know these kinds of data when you're talking to your patients, because if you're seeing an advanced kidney cancer patient, especially if you're undergoing set reduction, a lot of times they're going to rely on you to understand the disease as well as the medical oncologist. Well, doc, how many, how many years am I going to be alive? And I tell patients now in this modern era, the majority of patients, the vast majority will be alive in two years. And many of them will be alive you know, for many, many more years than that. But at the time of sunitinib, we had about a 58% overall survival. And you can see now with the most recent FDA approval of vexitinib and Pembro, um, that this has now shifted from 58% to 87%, which is really, really remarkable. Um, and this is the objective response. And this is important because this is really telling you how likely the tumor is to shrink. And so you'll see with the first single agent immunotherapies and VEGF therapies, you would see overall response rates that were still relatively modest. So with single agent nivolumab, which is a PD-1 inhibitor, or single agent atezolizumab, which is a PD-L1 inhibitor, you would have overall response rates in the, in the teens to low 20s. With sunitinib and pazopinib, that was about 25, 30%. But now you're starting to see with combination therapies, these overall response rates go up dramatically. So ipinevo goes up to 40%, and then the, the VEGF IO therapy combinations go up to uh, you know, 50 plus percentage. And this has implications also, again, I keep trying to tie this back to the surgeons. If you're discussing an operative strategy in a patient with a very bulky tumor, or they have you know, borderline receptability, for example, um, sometimes giving these agents up front actually can help shrink down the masses. Um, this was not the case prior, uh, and in some of the surgical series where they gave uh, neoadjuvant or consolidative uh, upfront immunotherapy, or, or sorry, VEGF therapy predominantly, this was only a modest impact on the tumors. We're seeing some pretty dramatic impacts now. I wouldn't say that this should be routinely done, but there are scenarios where these medicines are so uh, potent in combinations that you can actually uh, consider them for you know, reducing uh, tumor volume and burden. Now, there is obviously the trade-off of potentially more hazardous surgeries after immunotherapy, but there is significant response rates even in the primary tumors in these patients. So we see this further combination therapy really boosting uh, outcomes. And that's really why it shifted now to the first-line therapy as, as, the, as the recommendation. So, Currently in the NCCN, um, the, the, the recommendation for favorable risk patients is exitinib and Pembro, and that's really become our standard at MSKCC. So when a patient presents for the first time in their favorable risk, if they're not a candidate for observation, they go on to typically receive Axi-Pembro or a clinical trial. If they're intermediate or poor risk, again, that's the patients with the poor performance status, the abnormal lab values, they're given either Ipinevo or exitinib Pembro, and we'll talk about the data for those in a second. And then there are other uh, regimens as well for whatever reasons. So let's talk about kind of the uh, approved regimens and what the data is behind those. So the first one uh, that was really led to this um, FDA approval in the first line was the Checkmate 214 trial. This was a BMS trial led by Dr. Mozart here at MSK. Um, and this was ipinevo versus sunitinib uh, for untreated advanced clear cell renal cell carcinoma it included all risk groups uh, and was open to the entire world really. Um, and so they looked at overall response rate, progression-free survival, and overall survival. Um, and they received ipinevo, and then they go on to nevo maintenance. So it's important to understand this a little bit also because the, the tolerability and side effects are different when you have both combination therapies. 
So in this case, there was um, a really significant improvement in overall survival. So you could see the median overall survival wasn't even met at the time of the trial. Um, these patients were living uh, very well. So this was a uh, hazard ratio of 0 0.6 with a highly significant p-value. And the progression-free survival rate was also very impressive uh, with an overall uh, improvement in three months uh, for progression-free survival, which is a very strict criteria. This is you know, looking at uh, resist reads by the radiologists. So uh, imp very impressive data here. And um, this is in all comers, and you can see that there was benefit predominantly in the uh, poor-risk patients. Um, and this is um, kind of looking at all uh, uh, different risk categories here. Sorry, this slide was out of order. So, so another important point is what was the complete response rate? And a lot of patients will want to know, you know, how likely am I going to be to respond completely to therapy? So you can see the overall response rate, at least in the first trial, was about 42%. But importantly, 9% of patients had a complete response, which is something that we never saw practically with VEGF era. So there are patients, and, and actually I'll talk a little bit about this in the surgical side, because we've seen some pathologic T0s now, but you have complete response rates of almost 10%. And this is the highest of any combination therapy uh, you know, that we'll talk about. So it's important to note this, and this is why ipinevo still remains an important um, treatment option despite the VEGF IO combinations being very effective. Um, so 9% response rate here, and then um, durable uh, response rates in up upwards of 70% of patients. Um, and then this is looking at the, the risk categories here. Um, this is in uh, the intermediate and poor risk patients where you see this response rate being very impressive. And more importantly, um, the overall response rate was very different, at least initially, in the favorable risk patients. So actually in this trial, one of the interesting things about this trial was that the favorable risk patients had a better response to sunitinib. And I'll, you know, I have some thoughts on that, which I'll talk about at the end about why this is the case. But at least in the combination, this suggested that it was better in the intermediate poor risk patients, but actually VEGF therapy still made more sense in the, in the uh, favorable risk patients, which is interesting. And we think it's probably mediated by the fact that the poor risk patients, again, the ones with poor performance status and abnormal lab values, are more of an immune infiltrated tumor type. And so they're more likely to respond to immunotherapies because they have a suppressed immune response uh, that can be reactivated with therapies. Whereas in a favorable patient, they're more likely to be angiogenically driven. That's at least the data from our lab. And that suggests that that's why those patients respond better to VEGF therapies. Um, so the overall survival was quite impressive. Again, this is in the intermediate poor risk groups, and you didn't really see that difference in the favorable risk. So, so this really changed the game for intermediate poor risk patients, but did not suggest a major change for the favorable risk groups. Uh, importantly, it's very well tolerated compared to uh, sunitinib. Um, sunitinib has a lot of complications associated with uh, rashes. Hypertension, obviously, is a, is a big risk factor in this disease, uh, as well as um, some liver toxicities. And you didn't see that same uh, toxicities with the immunotherapy. So even though these are very potent uh, drugs, they are more effective often. The overall side effects can often be less than we see with VEGF therapies. And in the old days, when we, we were given IL-2 or interferon alpha, even though 7 to 10% of patients were getting complete responses and even cures, it was so toxic that the medications became really not... Um, not used because of, the, of their toxicity. And this new era of immunotherapy was really uh, effective because uh, the toxic, not only were they as effective, if not more than the current standards, they were also much better tolerated. And this is kind of displayed here. 
The next trial I'll mention, which has really now become the standard, uh, is the uh, Pembro Axi. Uh, compare, uh, this is the keynote trial. And this was um, comparing Axi Pembro, so that's PDL1 and Exitinib with Sunitinib again. And this was again open to uh, all patients, including favorable risk and intermediate and poor risk groups, again, all open throughout the world. Um, and here again, the keynote 426 data shows uh, a very impressive. Uh, hazard ratio reduction of uh, 0.53, even better than the Ipinevo one. And you see these very amazing overall response rates uh, at 18 months with 82% of patients alive um, in, uh, in the uh, Axipembril and 72% of Sunitinib. Um, and then the progression-free survival rate was even more impressive, again, 15 months versus 11 months and a very significant hazard ratio and p-value here. Uh, and again, the objective response rates were quite impressive, 60% now. So 60% of patients were having some level of shrinkage of either the primary or their meds. Most of these patients had side reduction, but there were a, a good number of patients in this trial, about 25 or 30% that had their, their native, kid, native kidney tumor in situ. And these patients all responded well. Again, I'll point out that the complete response rate was a little bit lower, about 6% uh, compared to the 9% that they saw in the Ipinefo one. So there, that is something to think about. And we'll talk a little bit about how that's used. Um, but again, this is something you almost never see in Sunitinib. So this is really impressive that we're seeing complete response rates. And the partial response rate, again, is very high. These are very strict ones by resist reads, by radiologists. So overall, you're seeing a lot of improvement. And only 10%, 11% of patients are just blown right through this, this uh, treatment which is really great. Again, very well tolerated. There are some uh, complications, obviously. This is a little bit more toxic than Ipinevo uh, because of probably the VEGF therapy that's given onto it. So you have some of the VEGF toxicities that you typically see, but they're not additive. So you don't see the same toxicities that you see uh, you know, with dual VEGF therapy, which had been tried at some point. And so you, know, you don't see um, a lot of additional toxicity by adding on the VEGF therapy. It is more toxic than Ipinevo, for example. So certain patients, you know, are selected based on that. Um, but in general, it's very well tolerated. The other one that came out around the same time, a very well done study led by Dr. Mocher was a Javelin uh, study. This was Avalumab and Exitinib, very similar in concept um, and also had very good response. If it hadn't been for keynote, this would have been the standard. They actually came out around the same time. And the uh, Javelin study, uh, similar response rates, 13.8 uh, months versus uh, 7.2 months in this cohort. This is in the pd one positive group. The overall survival in all comers was less impressive. It was not significant on the overall survival, at least at the time of surgery, at the time of reporting, I'm sorry. But um, it, it was impressive. And so here you can kind of see the overall response rate, though, being pretty good. It's not as high as the um, keynote and certainly not as high as Epinevo for complete responses, but the overall response rate was very impressive, more than the, uh, more than the checkmate, uh, but a little less than the, uh, than the uh, keynote. So again, this was kind of in between the two. And again, if it hadn't been for the keynote trial, this probably would have been the standard of care now. So again, this is where you see the landscape is based on this Axiom Pembro in the favorable risk patients. Uh, and intermediate risk, Ipinevo, based on the checkmate data, suggesting a, a, a stronger benefit for intermediate porous and no real benefit in the, in the favorable risk groups. And then Exitinib and Avalumab as a second option for these patients because of the more impressive results in Exitinib and Pembro. Um, just a little bit of a follow-up, though. The checkmate 214 data has had recent updates uh, with longer follow-up now, and you start seeing 
uh, still actually a good response rate even in the um, in the uh, of, of better risk patients. You do see a continued responses in the intermediate. Uh, there's early separations of curves for both, but you actually see there's longer term follow up now for for the um, uh, checkmate two one four because it was an earlier study. And you're seeing kind of a preserved tail in these patients. So about 40% of patients are continuing to have, sorry, about 50% of patients are continuing to have very good responses, even at three and a half or four years out. So again, this is important data for our patients to know that with the current immunotherapy options, we expect at least half the patients to be alive at four years. Um, and that's really great. I mean, it's just great to compare to where, where it was when I was in, uh, in training, even that was only about 10 or 15 years ago. Um, you start seeing this curve separations around 18 months, and then you start seeing this flattening of the curve at about 24 months, and that's these durable responses that we're seeing with immunotherapy in particular, which is kind of unique. And that's what you see in other cancers as well. If you look at melanomas or lung cancers, you see about 20% of patients have ongoing durable responses. Whether these are considered cures, we still don't know. It's hard to define that, obviously, but these are patients that are on single agent nivolumab maintenance therapies, and they're responding really, really well to, um, to uh, therapy. Um, let me just see, I got a question here. What is the significance benefit of combining exitinib along with Pembro in the keynote trial? Is there any comparing exitinib with Pembro alone? So um, great question. There were some small phase two trials with single agents uh, that were modestly effective. As I showed earlier, the single agent drugs, uh, immunotherapies, nivolumab, Pembro, they have a very modest effect, not anything better really than a single agent sunitinib. Um, so there was really very little interest in giving a single agent drug in the first line setting. In second and third line settings, single agent drugs still have some, uh, um, so, uh, still have some benefit. Uh, and so sometimes nivolumab or Pembro is given as a second or third line agent for patients that have shown resistance to VEGF therapies. Um, but as a single agent first line therapy, there was disappointing data with them compared to the standard VEGF. The reason why we think there's some synergy between VEGF therapies and PD-1 therapies has to do with the, probably the effects on both the vascular normalization. When you give a VEGF therapy, you're improving the abnormal vessels that are in the tumors, and that makes uh, immune cells able to get into the tumor better, so therefore it's synergistic with immunotherapy. But the other factor is that a lot of these VEGF therapies actually target immune cells as well. So uh, data from my lab and that we're, that we're working on right now shows that a lot of these different immunothera um, VEGF therapies um, are actually um, uh, targeting macrophages and other and MDSCs, other populations, and are actually uh, effective on the immune response as well. So there may be some synergy there with the immunotherapies as well. And someone asked about a question about how long to wait for cytoreductive after IO. That was Dr. Sakianos. I will get to that in, uh, toward the end when I talk about surgery. Um, Okay, so let me continue here. So, um, so what is the significance of these objective responses? And again, I, I was just talking about how some of these patients will continue to respond for years. It seems that if you're still on treatment, uh, about 34% of patients are, are still on treatment in the updated Checkmate 214 data. These patients have very, very long responses. There's a significant number of patients that actually that are off treatment and never receive subsequent uh, systemic therapy. This is an important point. With immunotherapies, you can develop treatment-related toxicities, uh, like you can develop LFT abnormalities or pulmonary abnormalities, and that actually is a harbinger for continued responses because the autoimmune toxicities that can develop 
can mean that you develop this durable response. Um, and those patients actually ne never need therapy. I've had patients myself that came in with metastatic disease. Uh, we rejected them for surgery because they were too sick. They had three or four doses of immunotherapy and then they just developed uh, a, almost a complete response everywhere and have never been on therapy again and continue to respond three, four years later. So the autoimmune side effects and toxicity can often be a reason to stop therapy, but also can be a very good prognostic sign for the patient. And then about a third of them will, uh, will need uh, subsequent therapy pretty, pretty, pretty soon after that they've kind of failed the initial immunotherapy. So really important to understand their initial responses, how that predict that. And also with the updated data, you started to see actually some benefit in the favorable risk patients as well. So we do think that there is probably still a benefit even in all comers for both, uh, for both uh, ipinevo and the VEGF-IO uh, combinations um, with longer term follow-ups. So this is kind of still remains, um, you know, not entirely clear, but we do think there's probably continued benefit in all groups. I'll just mention a couple of other trials that, that tried combinations that weren't as effective. Uh, there was the Atizo-Bev trial. This came out of Emotion 151. This came out of Genentech. Um, and led by uh, David McDermott from uh, Beth Israel Deaconess in Boston. And this uh, uh, also had a combination. This is a tezolizumab, which is a pdl one inhibitor, and bevacizumab, which is a monoclonal VEGF antibody compared to sinitinib. This was not nearly as, as uh, impressive in terms of the response rates, suggesting that, uh, again, this supports the notion that the combination matters in terms of the VEGF inhibitor. So bevacizumab is a very specific monoclonal antibody to VEGF. doesn't have the other tar off-target effects that the VEGF inhibitors have on the other microenvironmental features. Um, so I think the reason why this trial was disappointing compared to the other trials, Xitinib and the uh, Avalum, uh, Avalum, uh, sorry, the Xitinib trials is because of the off-target effects of the VEGF inhibitors uh, and, and how they're synergistic with uh, uh, checkpoint blockade therapy. There are a couple of ongoing trials that, um, that are reporting, actually the, the BMS9 uh, ER trial just reported with a press release, which was positive. Uh, we'll see how this stacks up compared to the um, Javelin or the Keynote, but this was Cabo plus Nevo, so Cabozanum, that was the other TKI I showed you about, that was the sec next generation one. Um, and that was uh, very impressive data that in their press release. It was a positive trial. We haven't seen the final data presented, but it was very impressive. There's the data that the clear trial, Levatinib and Pembro, which is also very effective. In fact, the overall response rate in the phase two trial was 73%. So even better than what had been shown with the keynote. So this may become, you may see two new standards pretty soon um, in the next year or two. So there'll be a lot of options for patients and, and how you choose these, I think is gonna be important. And some of the research we're doing in our lab is trying to figure out you know, which medication makes the most sense to give and what's the rationale. Because all, all these trials are positive now. How do you decide for a patient? Is there some molecular data, tumor profiling that you can do, microenvironmental profiling you could do to choose which agencies patients should get because they're all so effective. And how do you select those ones that develop complete response? And finally, there's the COSMIC 313 trial that we're leading here. This is a really uh, kind of a, this is like the balls to the wall trial where you give Cabozana, Ipi, and Nevo, all three drugs together versus Ipi, Nevo. And uh, this is going to be, a, you know, it's a little bit more toxic, but has the potential of having even more complete responses because you're kind of throwing everything at the patient at once. Um, and then there's the pedigree trial. These are kind of adaptive trials led out of the Alliance group by Tony Shuari and Dan George. And this is where you give 
combinations of different treatments um, where they, they start off with epinevo and then they look at if they're a complete response, which I showed is about 10%, they get nivol, nivol on maintenance. If they have progressive disease, they get randomized to different combinations. So nivolumab, cabo-nivo or cabozanum alone. So these are these adaptive trials that are being developed now that we see uh, effectiveness with different combinations. What to give after in second line is not resolved. So this is kind of a way of, of, of potentially uh, looking at that. Um, so in conclusion, um, at least for, for um, before I get to surgery, um, Exitinib and Pembro is the new standard in the first-line therapy and really across all therapies now. Uh, Ipinevo is not favored in the favorable risk group because of inferior overall response rate in PFS, although this may be a little bit less of an issue now with longer-term follow, but it's still it's probably less effective. Um, Single agent TKI remains a reasonable alternative. And these are top, uh, particularly for patients that have autoimmune diseases, they can't get immunotherapies for whatever reason. Um, they'll often be given pazopinib or sitinib in the first line. Uh, and then, as I mentioned, uh, you can do a lot of active surveillance in these adequately selected uh, favorable risk patients, as we showed earlier in our data. Um, what about for intermediate porous patients? So usually we'll get axipembro here. Um, if not, you can also give ipinevo. And uh, there's some su suggestion that PDL1, um, you know, may be predictive here. You know, unlike other cancers, PDL1 expression has not been a major predictor in clear cell, at least. Non clear cell, we see some data that PDL1 may be, may be better of a predictor, but not in clear cell. So we don't typically give this. Uh, use, I mean, we don't typically use PDL1 staining to make the decisions. Um, again, if they have a, a strong autoimmune disease or require immunosuppression, you consider the TKA monotherapy. And then, uh, you know, depending on their, this is more for the medical oncologist. So what about surgery? Um, so um, this is really important. I think it's going to become increasingly important for, um, for you guys uh, in practice because you're going to be seeing more and more patients that were either seen by a medical oncologist up front and underwent systemic therapy, or you kind of saw and you said, ah, they're not really great surgical candidates, or they have a lot of disease outside the kidney. Um, what should I do? And um, so in this set, uh, in this setting, um, um, you know, there's been a couple of uh, early series. This actually was just published, I think, this week or last week uh, from France. Uh, in this was a multi-institutional cohort of 11 patients, uh, and they showed a very high rate of um, complications with surgery. Four hours for operations, nine, uh, 900 cc blood loss. Um, and uh, a long length of stay, seven days, um, with a 54% complication rate, including two major complications. Uh, again, small series here. Um, these are patients that had um, delayed cytoreduction, reduction, basically. Um, this has not been our experience personally here. Uh, this is um, put together by Karola uh, Zatala, my current fellow. Um, and we have um, actually a much larger experience. Now, this is, this is from the first 13 initial ones uh, that we did. Uh, and this is kind of seeing how our outcomes here in uh, about um, 13 patients initially uh, looking at um, patients that received upfront nivolumab either on one of my trials or combined for patients that were rejected for cytoreduction, for example. Um, and you can see here that um, our EBL was about 125, operative time was two hours. They, most of the patients went home in two days. Uh, interestingly, they had complete response rates um, 
uh, of, you know, there were two patients here that had complete pathological responses. Both of these were, were my, actually one was mine and one was Paul Russo's, uh, where they had still a mass that was seen on imaging, but actually when it was resected and the pathologist looked at it, there was no viral disease. It was all just immune cells. So you do see this pretty dramatically. Uh, and both these patients are continuing to do actually quite well. Um, and then we had a near complete response rate. This was another one of my patients where they found 1% a viable tumor in like, you know, the entire specimen. That's what they called, they said 99% regression. They found one viable area of tumor. It probably was on its way to a complete response. Um, and we see we've had no intraoperative complications, you know, low related toxicity and, and side effects from this. So I think that France uh, series, and we're actually writing a letter of response to this letter. So hopefully we'll, you'll see that data soon. But essentially we don't see that same level. Um, I think if they're appropriately selected, if you if you have a lot of experience with, with complex kidney surgeries, you're not going to see the same um, results as the French group. Uh, I'm a little skeptical on a lot of theirs because they their Carmina data was so you know bizarrely different than what we see in in our series. Um, I, I think there's some something to do with uh, kind of broadening of care across you know hundreds of hospitals in low volume hospitals. Um, even you know so some of this will skew the data. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention is um, that we saw a lot of reduction in tumor. This is the primary tumor diameter baseline. So when we select patients for delayed site reduction, there are two reasons why we do this typically. One is that they have a really great benefit. So their shrinkage is occurring everywhere and even in their primary tumor. Um, so you see patients with 40, 50% reduction. The other is patients that are resistant. So these are patients that have bulky tumors, um, they may have poor performance status. They go on to therapy and their performance status improves, but their tumors don't shrink very much. So these are patients that we're actually doing delayed side reduction on now because the patients are getting benefits from therapies in terms of systemic response and how they feel, but they're not necessarily having shrinkage of the tumor. Um, and so those are patients that we go ahead and operate on as well. Uh, I've done a bunch of these. They're often challenging and I'll often do them with a partner, senior partner, um, especially if they have bulky adenopathy, um, because you know you want these patients to do well. You want to you know, make sure that they're getting through this. And it's also important to tell them that this is part of the process. You're not curing them. You're, this is multidisciplinary care, and surgery is being integrated into their immunotherapy or a systemic therapy regimen, and it's not meant to cure them. So you really want to be careful when you're operating these patients. You want to do no harm. That's your job as a surgeon. And you want to often, uh, some, some of these can be challenging. In, we didn't, um, when you think, when just a, a little bit of, of our uh, experience with, uh, with combination versus single. So we have a, I have a trial, as I mentioned, uh, with upfront nivolumab signal agent and then go on to, uh, uh, go on to surgery. And these are non-metastatic high-risk patients. And uh, in general, um, with single agent drugs, we, we almost never see any sort of reaction, uh, very little. I've operated on about 10 patients with either ipinevo or VEGF IO combinations, and they do have more of a um, reaction in some patients. Um, often this tracks with how well they've responded. So the patients that have like really great responses often have more inflammation. Um, but, you know, so it is something to be aware of. We have had some, you know, I just did one uh, earlier in the week that was very difficult. It was a, it was a, had, a, had been a partial, then developed a rapid recurrence. 
with the thrombus, and that was that was much more uh, inflamed and aggressive, and it invaded into the liver. So we had to do a partial hepatectomy with the uh, HPV service. So that was a you know challenging case technically, but those are the same as their as as primary RCCs also. I think the the addition of immunotherapy has not dramatically changed how we operate, and I think that French series is a little bit misleading. So I hope others will have a chance to kind of get out their experience with operating on in the IO setting. I don't think it's as bad as that, that series would, would seem to indicate. And um, I think a lot of patients should be getting upfront immunotherapy now, uh, especially if they're intermediate and poor risk, because they will respond. These, some of these patients respond better even than the favorable risk patients. And then you can go ahead and do surgery when, the, when they're stronger and the tumors may, may be smaller. There will be some increased inflammation, but I think on balance, it makes sense to give uh, immunotherapies upfront. So uh, I would like to thank Dr. Voss who provided many of the trial data uh, for this um, and I'm happy to answer any questions. Thank you so much, Dr. Kimi. That was a great and comprehensive talk. Um, we really appreciated you taking the time to be here with us. Um, if anybody has any other questions for Dr. Kimi, please post them in the chat. Um, also um, want to send out a reminder to everybody um, to please complete the survey that we mentioned um, in the chat. So Dr. Slotion said two questions. I'm going to uh, just address them. So the first question was how long do we, do we wait after um, surgery? So if you're getting um, IO therapy, it's just a few days. It's like a week, basically. Um, yeah, that's all we do. And for the, um, and if they're on a combination therapy, it depends on the half-life of what they're on. Exitinib is a very short half-life. So if they're on Axipembro, that washes out within three or four days. Um, so we can really take them to the OR within a week. Uh, the question then about how long to put them, how long to wait before you put them back on really depends on, on, on their need to do it. Um, often these patients will be watched actually afterward um, and they don't go on to therapy right away. It just depends. And in terms of biopsy before neoadjuvant, um, so for our trial initially, it was only open to clear cell patients. So everyone got biopsy beforehand. And then we expanded it to be open to non-clear cell as well. We personally biopsy everybody because we're for research interest as well, because we want to compare the immune response in the pre and post biopsies. Um, and the patients are fine with that in general. Um, it may be hard to do that in every institution because uh, we, our trials were integrated into interventional radiology. So we get the patients really quickly taken care of. Some of the challenges of these larger trials, like the PROSPER trial, which was a multi-institutional trial uh, of new adjuvant uh, nivolumab in localized disease, has been getting the biopsies done in a timely fashion for patients. And that trial has had a lot of trouble accruing. Um, so, you know, this is a challenge. And if you're considering doing some of these pre-surgical therapy trials, you have, to, you have to have a good partnership with interventional radiology to get them done um, quickly. Uh, and then, because the patients are very anxious in this scenario. One thing I try to impress upon the patients is that these tumors did not pop up overnight. If you're delayed for six weeks, you're not, we're not ignoring the tumor. We're treating you with medicine that we think works and um, giving you an option to get therapies up front may boost your response rates, which has been shown in preclinical models in kidney cancer, but also more importantly, in lung cancers and, and melanomas, we're giving neoadjuvant therapies, uh, immunotherapy can boost it compared to the adjuvant setting. So there's some, some roles in doing that. Um, I think people, um, you know, patients get nervous, but in general, it's fine. One of the challenges of giving these more potent combinations in a neoadjuvant setting, I should add, is that their uh, toxicity is higher. So giving single agent nivolumab is very safe. The, the toxicity rate is very, very low. We had no delays in surgery so far at about 20 patients. 
if you give axipembro or ipinevo, the toxicity is much higher. And so there is a potential for losing a surgical window in a patient that's non-metastatic. So I think it's going to be challenging to give uh, neoadjuvant trials that extend beyond single agent drugs uh, because of the toxicity risk. Um, I think in the metastatic setting, it's a little bit easier to say, we'll give you a potent combination therapy and then do surgery in a delayed setting because the patients accept the fact that they're going to have systemic disease. So that's a little bit of a challenge right now. Um, the, I got something, the last slide with diameter decrease needs to be performed as volume decrease. That's true. Okay, good point. Uh, this is just a comment on uh, what we showed in our slide. Um, and I think the there was one, yeah, go ahead. I think there was one other question. Um, is treatment stopped for patients who have complete response and are they then put on? Yes, support? great question. In general, it is. Um, the complete response rates are still rare, uh, about five to 10%. Um, if they have a durable ongoing response, complete response rate, and typically it's a couple of scans in a row, then they, they have been stopped. The data on that in other cancers uh, like melanomas is a little bit better uh, because it's just longer term data, suggesting that most patients can be re-challenged uh, with immunotherapy again if they fail. There is a subset though that develops some sort of escape mechanism where when you stop the therapies and then restart it, they don't do as well. It's hard to know because those aren't randomized, whether those patients would have progressed regardless of whether you stopped it or not. So there is a theoretical risk that they will escape, but in general, we've been successful in stopping immunotherapy after complete response for prolonged periods of time. And certainly if we resect all visible disease, for example, let's say a patient presents to your office with liver mats or lung mats, and a big primary, they undergo upfront immunotherapy and their MET shrinks or disappears and their primary tumor is still there. When we resect that, we'll often stop therapy because all their diseases has essentially been removed and those patients can maintain off therapy. The questions are really, if they have a partial response to the MET, do you, do you uh, stop that? Um, and that is a little bit more controversial. Um, and that's, you know, usually they will continue that therapy in that setting. Um, but it's hard to know because a lot of these partial responses in the METs, if you actually biopsy them, they're just immune cells, they're no longer uh, viable tumors. So that area of definition of response by radiology for immunotherapy is still uh, a work in progress because we don't have a good handle on what a residual disease means in the metastatic setting when they have a good response to immunotherapy. Is that really tumor or is it just immune cells that look like a mass? Some of that may be worked out with some of the more modern PET imaging, which are meant to kind of image immune cells as well. You're seeing some new PET agents that look, look at CD8 cells or pdl one positive cells. And that may be, give us some more information about what is the residual disease that's left behind. Um, and so that may, that may be helpful in the metastatic setting. Um, you know, it's hard to know that, but that's an ongoing area of research.